Good afternoon, Acadiana. This is Joe Cunningham, the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 96.5 KPL. If you want to be part of the conversation, 232-1542 to talk about our topics of the day. First of all, want to uh, want to very want, want to share the very exciting news. The government has made available the ability to order at-home tests a day earlier than promised. So now you can order these tests online and get them late January as opposed to early February. That is terrific news for all of us who wanted to have an at-home test available really after this Omicron surge has passed. Terrific, terrific work by the federal government. You know, Joe Biden announced that he was going to shut down the virus. And then he uh, basically admitted that there is no federal solution to it. But they were going to buy up the, 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 the antigen treatments. They were going to buy up the, uh, the tests, the, the at-home tests. They were going to buy up all these things and, and make it available for free for all of us. And there's been a shortage of all of it. Testing sites have been overrun as the Omicron surge has, has rolled through communities. You have uh, these at-home tests, which, uh, you know, they announced like a month ago that they were buying all of these and they were going to make it available to us. And then they waited a month and announced that it was going to be available through a USPS website. And they said, okay, well, it'll be ready for y'all in a week. And then magically, government incompetence is rolled back and they make it available in like six days rather than a week so that you can get it in seven to 12 days. So you can get it by the end of this month as opposed to like February 1st. Just a really stellar job from the United States government. Lots to talk about today. I want to go back to something that I, I talked about yesterday on the show. Because I had a couple people reach out on, on Facebook and, and elsewhere asking me to, to kind of go over again uh, these two Democratic candidates who are running against John Kennedy for Senate. I know Moon's talked about it the past couple days as well. Um, and I talked about it yesterday, then that was my morning column, was kind of going a little bit further on it today. And I, w- I want to start with Gary Chambers. And I want to start with Gary Chambers because he's, he made national headlines today. Gary Chambers dropped his first Senate ad of the year, and it is called 37 Seconds, and it's him smoking a blunt in video. It is him smoking marijuana as he's talking about decriminalization and the eventual legalization of marijuana. And, you know, Chambers actually has a point. There is a lot of overcriminalization in the criminal justice system where it comes to drugs. A lot of drug policy in the United States uh, is was a, a very steep overreaction to the usage at the time, and, and a lot of it's stuck around. And Chambers is, as I, as I mentioned, Chambers is going to make a solid play for black Democratic voters. Again, black Democratic voters, about 725,000 of the roughly 1.2 million Democratic voters in the state are black voters. And there is an overrepresentation of black citizens in our prison system, and a lot of it has to deal with drug crimes, drug, uh, drug charges. So Chambers is making a play to really go after those black Democratic voters, which is going to be a problem for uh, Luke Mixon. Luke Mixon is a white Democrat from central Louisiana, and he is, as Stephanie Grace wrote in NOLA.com in her column, 
he's kind of making a John Bell Edwards type play where he wants to position himself as a centrist or moderate Democrat. Now, we know Edwards is not a moderate Democrat by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, he has routinely uh, opposed what I would call in some cases moderate or centrist bills that are put forth by a legislature that should be conservative and is really a lot more in the center. Uh, but he's refused a lot of a lot of their bills because they didn't go far enough to the left for his for his taste. He's not the moderate centrist that he promised he would be, and Luke Mixon's going to be the same, and that's a problem for Mixon. See, Edwards can be that way as the governor of the state of Louisiana because he's only worried about state politics. Mixon is running for a federal office. He has to run statewide to be a part of national democratic politics and national politics as a whole. And the Democrats nationally are not fans of centrist or moderate Democrats. So either he is going to, to try to stick to that and try to be a Joe Manchin type centrist, moderate Democrat. And he might, if, if, if let's just say he's able to get elected in Louisiana this year, which he's not. He wins, he's, he goes to Washington, D.C. In order to stay elected in Louisiana, he would have to continue to be a centrist, moderate Democrat, one that brings stuff back for the conservatives in his state to like. In doing so, he's not going to be very popular with national Democrats. He will be attacked as routinely as Manchin and Sinema and the others. His alternative is to go to D.C. and be of a of, of left-leaning liberal, progressive. He'll have to go in and be as progressive as, as, as he wants to be, and he'll make friends with all the national Democrats, and then he will turn right around and lose re-election in six years. His position is untenable. I don't think Mixon gets very far in this race. Now, keep in mind, the white Democrats of the state of Louisiana, including Edwards, have all sent former staffers, former aides, to build up Mixon's campaign team. They want this guy to be the guy. But the thing is, it's not about the Senate. Both of these candidates don't stand a chance. But you know what these candidates are looking at. They're looking at 2023, when there is no running, there is, there is currently no successor to John Bell Edwards. By running a statewide campaign for the Senate in a long-shot bid against a very popular John Kennedy, they're laying the foundation, they're laying the infrastructure for a future statewide race. These two men will probably be names that are tossed around to replace Edwards in 2023. The Republicans have their own names that are out there. The Democrats need somebody. The only other possible statewide candidate they have is Gwen collins Greater, who ran against Kyle Ardwin for uh, Secretary of State twice. But she does not, she hasn't really been all that active in state politics. I'm not sure that she can really build that celebration. She can try. There could be three, there could be three Democratic candidates in 2023 to replace Edwards. But you're also going to have two, maybe three, even more Republicans running for that as well. It's going to be a chaotic primary. We'll see how that goes in 2023. But you have Gary Chambers and Luke Mixon ostensibly running for Senate, but really laying the groundwork 
for governor. And it's going to be an issue for the Democrats who have to reconcile the fact that that 60% of their voting base in the state is black. And they have to find a candidate that can bring them out to the polls, but somehow also try to attract the moderate voters of the state. We're going to go ahead and take a break. When we come back here on the Joe Cunningham Show, we'll talk more about this, some national news. And oh, by the way, did you know that white privilege has been discovered in squirrels? We'll talk about that and more when we come back here on the Joe Cunningham Show. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 965 KPEL 232-1542 if you want to join in the conversation. Also, if there's ever a day when you miss the show, we are available on podcast. You can check us out. Uh, Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, uh, we're up on Stitcher now, which is a popular po- uh, podcasting platform, and on Amazon Music. So if you have an Alexa device in your uh, in your house, all you got to do is say, Alexa, play the Joe Cunningham radio show, and it should start that uh, podcast fairly quickly. So if you, have, uh, in, if, if you listen to podcasts, or if you miss the show and you want to catch up on anything you've missed, that's available there. Also, be sure uh, when you listen to, to, to rate and review uh, those podcasts as well. That gets us in front of a lot more eyes, and we definitely want to see the show grow, uh, continuing to go forward. All right. Uh, so I'm really fascinated by a bit of local news. There's a there's a, a column r- routinely put out at the Advertiser uh, by you Buzz. I'm sorry, Business Buzz, uh, by Taylor Potter at the Advertiser. And and I I was I read these because I'm I'm always curious to see the 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 businesses and and the growth and stuff that's happening. In Lafayette, and I'm very excited about this one. Lucky's Fire and Smoke planned uh, for Johnson. So, uh, uh, a former business, former uh, bakery and coffee shop on Johnson is now being repurposed and remodeled uh, to bring in Lucky's Fire and Smoke, which is a James Beard Award-winning uh, barbecue restaurant in in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, so, this will be on Johnson Street. Uh, the renovation is valued at about ninety-eight thousand or ninety-nine thousand dollars. Uh, and that's awesome. I, so I, I had promised early on when we started talking about the show that we would talk about food because I like cooking. I like barbecue. Uh, so we would talk about, I, I love the fact that there is a growing barbecue scene here in Lafayette. I would love to see more of it. I would love to see a lot of those, uh, a lot of those barbecue cooking competitions that you see on the cooking channels and all that all the time. I'd love to see some of that featured in this area because we have a unique perspective on taste. You know, I'm from uh, North Central Louisiana, from Natchitoches. Moving down here, one was a, was terrible for my waistline, but two was was eye opening in terms of the the types of flavors that can be developed in cooking. I, I never really was big into cooking until I moved down here and just got to experience a lot of Cajun food, and that's really kind of pushed me forward in the food that I like to cook. Uh, in fact, this weekend uh, I've got the meat grinder and sausage stuffer out. I've got some venison from a deer that my my nine year old shot. Uh, so I, I think I'm going to work on some venison sausage this weekend. If if you guys have any uh, any recipes for for your own venison sausage or anything like that, please call in 232-1542. I'd love to even get those recipes from you. I've got a few at, at the house that I want to try, but I'll take any pointers because venison is one of those meats. I'm, I'm not as familiar with cooking as I am like pork. I can, I'll, anything pork. I will cook and I will uh, I, I will do in, in many different ways, but venison I haven't had a whole lot of experience with yet. Although I am looking to uh, 
to up my experience with that. And thank goodness my nine-year-old shot and killed a deer. So, Joe. Yo. Let me ask you. What, what is your thinking now? What are you going to mix with your venison to make the sausage? Because you know you have to have something. Yes. So uh, the, the, the venison itself was already ground with a bit of beef fat in it. So that'll add, that'll add some fat to it. As far as other flavors and everything, probably, probably some red pepper, um, some trinity and some garlic in there. And uh, a, lot of, a lot of sausage recipes will call for uh, some sort of wine, depending on the type of meat. White, white wine to go with it um, kind of adds a little acidity to it. And then I'll, I'll just do it in the links and then smoke them. Hang well, them and smoke them. For I, I, think, I think I've heard, I, I've never made it, but I've eaten it. Some of the stuff from Ville Platte, mm-mm, good. And I think pork is a key. So hopefully you folks call. I want to I hear. I, you know, I do have some pork fat at home, and I do have some, some pork roast and things that I need to actually get rid of because they've been in the freezer a little bit too long. So I can grind that and put that in with the venison as well. I think one of the traditional andouille recipes called for venison and pork, and I, I have that in one of the there's, – there's, a, there's a, a cookbook called Charcuterie. And it's a, a, there's a section just on sausages and, and that recipe is in there. So I do want to try that. But, again, it's probably going to be I'm, – I'm not traveling this weekend. You know, two weekends ago I was in Natchitoches because I finally got to see my family after our COVID lockdown. This past weekend, I, I told you guys yesterday, I, I rushed back from Dallas to be on the show. I'm finally just at home this weekend and not doing anything. So I imagine there's a lot of cooking that's going to be happening at my house especially with it being this cold it, it might even be a, a gumbo weekend as well as the, the sausage cooking and everything I also have a couple of boudin recipes that I really want to try uh, that may not be this weekend but that is coming up uh, I, I, I like experimenting with a lot of this stuff but I'm very excited going back to the whole reason I brought this up I love to see uh, I love to see you know barbecue restaurants and barbecue culture growing around here because the Cajun perspective on cooking that historic you know legacy of cooking, combined with traditional barbecue and smoking can create very, very fascinating and, and wonderful food. So I'm very excited about that. I, and and I, hopefully, um, hopefully it'll, I think later this year, um, they've got the renovations going. So later this year, maybe early 2023, we'll be seeing this. Um, according to the restaurant's website, according to Taylor's piece of the advertiser, Lucky's has a location in Detroit in addition to being, in, in addition to a menu featuring all types of barbecue, the brand also sells spices and wagyu beef. So that's exciting. Let's see. Uh, so going back to what I was talking about before the break, um, the the thing about this U.S. Senate race, like I said, going into the break. This is more about 2023 than it is 2022. John Bell Edwards does not have a successor. He is the only statewide elected Democrat. There is nobody else in the state that can take the reins from him. There's no Democratic leadership in the House or Senate that's really worth a damn. And certainly nobody with any statewide appeal. Edwards won in 2015 because of a divided Republican Party and weak candidates. And so he was the alternative. He was the not those guys. And then in 2019, the Republicans were again divided, and one candidate dropped a ton of money just to call the other candidate names and basically get him eliminated from the race, and then incumbency won John Bell Edwards' re-election. 
the Republicans need a platform. The Republicans need party infrastructure. I said that yesterday. But the Democrats need a successor. And they currently don't have one. So you have Gary Chambers and you have Luke Mixon running against John Kennedy for Senate, not because they really want the Senate spot, but because the Democrats want to lay the groundwork for 2023 and give John Bell Edwards a successor for governor. And that's why Chambers' candidacy in particular is so important, because right now there's nobody else in the state who can tap into black voters. Now, I mentioned last week, there are rumors, and this was reported by the Hayride last week, there are rumors that Sharon Weston Broom, mayor of, of Baton Rouge, is thinking about jumping in. She can be kind of a mix of Chambers and Mixon. She is a black candidate, but she's not as super progressive in how she portrays herself as Chambers would be. Broom can run as, not as center as Mixon would try to run, but further to the center than Chambers and might be a lot more palatable to white Democratic voters and moderate voters in the state of Louisiana. Now, again, all of this is theoretical because we're looking at 2022. It is looking like a bad year. In fact, I need a, uh, a recent Gallup poll I got to go into when we come back at the after the bottom of the hour news. Got to talk about this Gallup poll and just how bad things are in terms of voter registration in the United States. The Republicans have a huge advantage, an advantage not seen since 1994. And it's just another warning sign that the Democrats are having a very, very, very bad time right now, and it's not looking like it's letting up. 232-1542 if you want to join in the conversation. Also, follow me on Facebook. You can go to facebook.com slash Joe Cunningham Show. Follow me on Twitter at Joe P. Cunningham. And check out the daily newsletter where my columns are sent every morning, kitchenpundit.substack.com. Sign up to receive every morning column there. Everything I talk about the show typically on there, so you can uh, subscribe there. We will be back after this break in just a moment. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 965-KPEL. If you want to call in, 232-1542 is the number. All right, so I, I, I'm pulling up. This is reported by Axios. So Gallup years ago was a very respected a poll, but they, they suffered, like a lot of pollsters did, they suffered a lot of setbacks with recent elections. But they're still charting some things, and one of the things that they're charting right now is party identification. In 2010, the party's identification was at parity. And, you know, in, in 2010, that was the famed shellacking of Barack Obama in those midterms. Right now, Republicans have a five-point advantage in party identification. In the first quarter of 2021, 49% of voters identified as Democrat, 40% identified as Republican. In the second quarter of 2021, 49 to 43 Democrat to Republican. In the third quarter of 2021, 45 to 44. At the end of the fourth quarter in 2021, Gallup is measuring party identification at 47% Republican 42% Democrat. This is bad news. Trump 
was at his lowest point when he left office in 2021, and the Democrats were really at their low point. In 2021, 29% of U.S. adults identified as Democrats, 27% as Republicans, and 42% as independents. There's an equal split of independents, roughly, 17% Democrat, 16% Republican. But that's changing. More independents are now sliding to the Republicans. Here's what else is going on. In this same poll and in other data, we're seeing that Republican preference for Donald Trump in 2024 has dropped dramatically. When Trump left office, it was 90% Trump, Trump, they, they favored Trump to be the, 20, the, the 2024 candidate for president. And now it's in like the mid-60s. It's a steady drop each time they take the poll. The further we get away from the end of the Trump era, the more Republicans are starting to branch out and starting to look elsewhere. And that's why you're seeing two things right now. You're seeing the media try to pick a fight between Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. The Democrats want the guy who is seen as kind of as really as the non-Trump front runner in 2024. Ron DeSantis, they're trying to pit him against Trump. They're trying to divide the base between the two. Despite the fact that neither candidate has mentioned the other at all. There's a story that was kind of thrown out there uh, over, kind of over the last 24 hours. It whispers that it was McConnell's people trying to pitch this, and it's not. It's not McConnell's people. It's not anybody in Washington, D.C. trying to pick this fight. It is Democrats and people in the media who desperately want there to be a fight between DeSantis and Trump because it distracts from just how bad the Democrats are doing. The other story that you're starting to see more and more of now that he has been sworn in as governor of Virginia is a focus on Glenn Youngkin. Virginia was the Democrat state. That was part of their wall. And to lose three statewide elections and the state legislature ticks them off to no end. And so starting with his swearing in, you saw people talk about the fact that he's talking so much about no more masking in school. And he's talking about critical, banning critical race theory. And there's this focus on, uh, there's this focus on the case numbers. There, there will be a focus on case numbers going up in Virginia. They're going to focus on Virginia and on Glenn Youngkin because they want this blue state to turn blue again. They want to see the Republicans collapse in that state to prove that Republicans aren't a long-term solution. So they're going to focus on Ron DeSantis versus Donald Trump, and they're going to focus on making everything about Glenn Youngkin's administration seem as chaotic as possible because they do not want there to be successful popular Republicans with their hands clean right now because the Democrats are currently having so many problems on the national stage. This is going to be 
where the Democrats and the media crank all of their usual tropes about Republicans up to 11. All the race, all the talks about racism, all of the talks about January 6th, trying to make Ron DeSantis and Glenn Youngkin out to be crazies, focusing on Stacey Abrams in Georgia, focusing on Democrats running in various states, all of the media coverage that Gary Chambers got today from the weed smoking ad. They're going to focus on all of these things to try to distract from the fact that Joe Biden is not only not getting anything done, but his own base is turning against him. There are grumblings among the progressive activist base against Joe Biden. They're ready to turn on him. Now, this isn't new. The progressives weren't happy with the Biden pick as it was. And there's going to be no living with them after this because they will say that they were right this whole time that Biden, because of the fact that he positioned himself as a centrist and was not progressive enough, even though he won, he's not going to be able to do anything and he will hurt Democrats more. That's going to be what they're going to say. And that's what they've been saying since he was elected. The progressives are turning against him. His base is turning against him. And as a result, the Democrats are more divided than ever. And now they're at a voter identification disadvantage. And they are at a polling disadvantage. And they have 26 members of their caucus leaving the House. And they cannot overcome somebody like Joe Manchin or Kirsten Sinema, who are holding up the filibuster vote. And even if Biden decides to not run in 2024, he's got no successor, just like John Bell Edwards. Who's going to run to replace Joe Biden? Is it going to be Kamala Harris? No. In fact, she just the other day said that she... Uh, she would not absolve anybody who didn't vote for the Voting Rights Act or, or who didn't support it. It's like, man, that's not your job. You're, you're, you're not a, a religious figure. You don't absolve people of their sins. Would Pete Buttigieg take over? No, absolutely not. Mitch Landry has now taken over transportation and infrastructure for uh, infrastructure under the Joe Biden administration. Mitch Landry is not going to be able to do anything. Nobody knows who he is outside of Louisiana, and all we remember is how much the infrastructure still sucks in New Orleans. Biden has no heir apparent. And so as the Democratic Party continues to collapse, the media is going to focus on all of these other issues to distract from what's going on in Washington, D.C. It's not good. And then you have guys like Don Lemon over at CNN who are doing as much to hurt the Democrats' chances as the Democrats are themselves when he says things like, we have to start doing things for the greater good of society and not for idiots who think they can do their own research or that they are above the law and they can break the rules. He's talking about people who are against the mask, who are skeptical of the vaccines, who don't want a booster shot, who would prefer to take ivermectin. People who question any of the science whatsoever, people who don't want their kids to wear masks in schools, people who don't want their kids to be in, 
want to be locked out of schools because schools are shutting down due to COVID. He's talking about all of those people. He is talking about the very people that put Glenn Youngkin into office that support Ron DeSantis and that are being pulled away from the Democratic Party because they are becoming so anti-parent and anti-individual thought. We're going to take a break. 232-1542, come back for our last segment. I did promise this. We are going to talk about white privilege in the animal kingdom when we come back after this break. Ladies and gentlemen, this is it. The final segment of the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 965 KPL. If you want to call in before we have to go, 232-1542. However, I've teased it a couple of times now. So normally I hate it when radio hosts read like in like huge chunks or entire stories. However, I cannot do justice to the following story without reading huge chunks from it. I'm sorry. Some North American red squirrels are born with a silver spoon in their mouths. They live in pine forests where the adults defend caches of food. Without a cache of their own, many baby squirrels won't survive the winter. But each year, some squirrels' mothers abandon their territory, bequeathing all of their food to one or more babies who stay behind. These young squirrels are much more likely to survive until the spring. Across the animal kingdom, there are other examples of species that share resources such as territory, tools, and shelter between generations. In a paper published last month by Behavioral Behavioral Ecology, a trio of researchers argue that we should call this phenomenon the same thing we call it in humans, intergenerational wealth. Those young pine cone rich squirrels, the scientists say, are children of privilege. That's right, folks. Privilege exists in the animal kingdom. When George Orwell wrote in Animal Farm that, that some animals were more equal than others, he was trying to shed light on the human ideological conflicts of the time. The researchers hoped to use the analogy in the opposite direction. Applying a human lens, they say, can help us understand the roots of equality in animals. Jennifer Smith, a behavioral ecologist at Mills College in Oakland, California, there's the buzzword, said the idea for the paper arose early in the pandemic in conversations that she and colleagues at the University of California, Los Angeles had over the course, uh, over Zoom. They saw how COVID-19 was highlighting wealth disparities and other inequalities around the world. The scientists began to wonder if they could learn more about inequality by studying it in animals. Here's the key line, folks. Here's where science has so often gone off the rails. When we started looking for it, we found lots and lots of examples, Dr. Smith said. That's right. When they decided what the conclusion was going to be, they found lots and lots of examples to prove their hypothesis. Because some animals will leave behind things for their young. That's intergenerational wealth in animals. And that's a problem in humanity. And so it occurs in nature. We now have to fight against nature to prevent this from ever happening again. We must fight against nature itself to promote equality and fairness. Y'all... This is, first of all, it's it's a very California hypothesis to go out and prove. I'm legitimately shocked that this wasn't Berkeley, but it was Mills College in Oakland. But this is nuts. 
This is nuts. In order to explain the inherent privilege that creates inequality in human society, we must go look at the animal kingdom. Young red grouse are more likely to succeed in establishing their own territories when their fathers and other kin are nearby. Hyena daughters born to high-ranking mothers inherit their status and get dibs on fresh meat. Some chimpanzees and capuchin monkeys crack nuts using stone tools that their parents used before them. Animal wealth may be passed down to non-relatives too, as in paper wasps that take over shared nests or hermit crabs that seek better real estate. Hermit crabs are apparently practicing gentrification. This is a story in the New York Times. It shouldn't shock you that this is in the New York Times and it is written so seriously. I thought this would be Babylon Bee or The Onion, but nope. This is the New York Times. Because we have to be so focused on inequality and iniquity and injustice. We have to go out into the animal kingdom and find things that prove that privilege exists and it is natural and that we have to fight against nature. We have to fight to better ourselves because we are the higher order species and we should do better than this. This is crazy behavior. And if you want to know why more people are deciding, I think I'll identify as Republican now. This is it. Because this is the type of social justice type stuff that drives moderates crazy. And they want to support Democrats because society itself does tend to trend a little toward the left in some ways, especially on social issues. They want to support the Democrats because the Democrats preach a very good game about equality and making sure that everybody is taken care of. But then a study like this comes out and the research concludes that privilege, a concept totally made up by people who wanted to explain why life can sometimes be unfair. They made this term up, and then they went and found examples of it in nature to back them up. This is crazy. And more and more, this type of stuff is chasing people away from the Democratic Party and toward the Republicans. Just like the more rich white progressives want to use the term Latinx or Latinx or whatever, however it's pronounced, to describe Hispanic voters, it chases Hispanic voters to the Republican Party. Do you know why? Because there's no such thing as a Hispanic voter. There's no such thing as a Latino or Latina voter. There are Cuban-American voters. There are Mexican-American voters. There are all sorts of South American countries who have had immigrants that come to the United States, and they are all vastly different people with vastly different cultures and vastly different ideas. But when you try to take these cultures and lump them all into one thing, Latinx, and really fight against the language itself, by fighting against the gendered language that is Spanish or Portuguese, you chase these people away. And you chase people away when you talk about 
white privilege existing in the animal kingdom. When you chase people away, when you start pushing for crazier and crazier things, and then you have to, and your 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 only option is to call people who don't support your ideas because you went crazy. Clearly, they're racists and they're bigots and they're homophobes and they're transphobes and they're the enemy. You cannot handle the fact that you lost your mind and chase them away. So you have to call them every name under the sun. That's why it's not working. That's why no matter what gains they can make, they can win the presidency in 2020. They can take back control of the House and the Senate. But the numbers are very slim. The numbers are very narrow. Because the people don't quite trust the Democrats because they don't know when they're going to go off the deep end in the end. If you have somebody like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez who are the spokespeople of your party, you're going to scare away the normal folks. And they're going to go toward the opposite of whatever those crazy people are saying. This is the Democrats' problem, and they cannot wrap their heads around it. Remember to check out Twitter at Joe P. Cunningham, Facebook.com slash Joe Cunningham Show. Follow the show there. Also, you can check us out in our podcast form on Apple, Spotify, uh, Stitcher, and Amazon Music. Tune into the show every day, 3 to 4, here on News Talk 96.5 KPL.